1: Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu.
4: 4.6 billion.
1: The Earth forms.
4: Cambrian: 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian-Triassic: 251 million. 90% of species
5: die. Cretaceous-Tertiary:
4: 65 million.
1: Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55
5: million.
4: Primates appear: 2.3 million. Pleistocene: 200,000. Humans: 20,000.
5: Agricultural 250. revolution: 250.
4: Industrial revolution: 60. Great acceleration: The Anthropocene.
2: Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Miles Traer. On today's show, we bring you a story about big data. This episode comes from the Raw Data podcast, also produced by our own Mike Osborne and Leslie Chang, which you can find on iTunes. In this story, Mike and Leslie explore how citizen science and crowdsourced data are offering new ways for people to engage with the natural world. In a time when so many of our stories about our changing planet seem apocalyptic, Is big data changing the narrative? Today on Generation Anthropocene, the big data of nature.
1: Big data means different things to different people. But if nothing else, it means that we are capturing and documenting more information than ever before. For some of the more idealistically minded folks in Silicon Valley, the logical following is that big data can be used to solve big problems.
4: And when it comes to tackling some of the most pressing issues we face, Environmental concerns are on the short list for a lot of people in the Bay Area. California has a long history of environmental leadership and activism, and that legacy is part of the culture of Silicon Valley.
1: Of course, climate change dominates environmental headlines, but the pressures on the natural world go well beyond global warming. Deforestation, pollution, ocean acidification, the list goes on and on.
4: So, does big data give us new tools for dealing with issues of conservation and sustainability? A lot of people would say yes. And to give you just one example, meet entrepreneur Jeff
6: Kirshner, who recently founded a startup called Literati. If you think about it, every single city in the world has a litter profile. So San Francisco has one, Oakland has one, Tokyo and Amsterdam. None of these places know what they are because no one's
1: ever done the work. The whole project started when Jeff was on a walk with his kids and his daughter saw a plastic tub of cat litter in a creek.
6: And she looked at me and she said, Daddy, that doesn't go there. And I know this sounds like a cliché, but for me, that was the eye-opening moment.
4: The next time Jeff saw a piece of litter, this time a cigarette butt, he took a picture of it and uploaded it to Instagram. And over the next several days, he kept going, uploading more and more pictures of litter. He began building his own little database.
6: I had no idea what I could do with that information. I just thought it was cool. So I started sharing it with people and people started taking photographs of litter using Instagram, adding the hashtag Litterati, and then throwing out or recycling what they were picking up.
1: As more people started taking geotagged snapshots of their local litter, the database grew.
6: And what started out as that first cigarette butt yesterday has turned into 179,000 pieces in 51 countries around the world. And we now have started building what is called the Litterati community. And it goes back to what Inspired this whole thing. It is a crowd of people around the world that is crowdsourced cleaning the planet, one piece of litter at a time.
1: We don't often think about the metadata of litter, but Jeff discovered that with just a little effort, he was able to unearth a lot of useful information.
6: Each and every photo tells us essentially who, what, where, and when. We're able to track who's picking up what because it's driven by the hashtag so we can see the most commonly found brands like Starbucks and McDonald's and Trident and the most commonly found product types like plastic and cigarettes and paper. And Each photograph also has a geotag so we have a map of the world that pinpoints the precise location where each and every piece of litter is picked up. And Then there's also a timestamp that allows us to really understand what types of litter we're seeing when. For example, in November, we see a ton of candy wrappers because of Halloween.
1: So, okay, it's great that there's this database out there tracking the movement of litter around the world. But we wanted to know, what's the real value here? Can you actually leverage this data?
4: Jeff told us he's still experimenting with ideas, but he offered up one story about a deal that came about with the city of San Francisco. Back in 2009, the city conducted a study to assess what percentage of litter on the streets was made up of cigarette material. San Francisco wanted to use that information to inform an excise tax on all cigarette sales.
6: So they put a couple of people with pencils and clipboards onto the streets of San Francisco, and they went around and they spot-checked, that's a cigarette butt, that's not, that is, that's not. They came up with a number, a percentage, and that translated into a current 20 cent tax. That's a massive revenue stream for the city. And then they got sued by Philip Morris because Philip Morris said, Look, your data methodology has no accuracy. It, there's not a lot of integrity to putting people on the streets with pencils and clipboards. And so the city called us and said, Hey, can you help us identify whether or not this particular item is cigarette material or not? And I said, You know, we could tell you if it's a Marlboro or a Marlboro Light or a Parliament, and we can give you a geotag and a timestamp, and we can really provide a, a robust set of analytics.
4: As a quick side note, Jeff says that some cigarette brands are characteristic of certain communities. For example, in Berkeley, American spirits are the most common form of cigarette butt litter, because, of course...
1: The bigger point is that Jeff is building a data set that tells you what kind of trash is where, how much of it there is, and how it changes over time. And with all this information, he has high hopes for Litterati.
6: The reason we exist is to create a litter-free planet. And while I recognize that is a, that is an ambitious goal, I think that we now have the tools to actually start to realize that vision. But reducing litter is
4: not the only way that environmentalists are leveraging crowdsourced data people are also using it to protect biodiversity and habitats.
1: This is top of mind for the largest conservation organization in the world, the Nature Conservancy, or TNC for short. Mike and I recently took a trip to San Francisco to meet Eric Halstein, who leads the Conservation Investments Department at TNC. He told us about a project TNC got involved with starting a few years ago called Bird Returns.
5: The short version of bird returns is that we were looking at a massive biological problem, largely in California, which is that the Pacific Flyway, which is a migration of birds that goes from Canada down to Mexico and back again, one of the last great migrations on Earth, is threatened because most of the wetlands that were in California's Central Valley have been lost.
4: Most of those wetlands have now been converted into farmland, so birds don't have much remaining habitat. TNC was brainstorming strategies to improve the situation. Now, normally TNC might try to buy up land and manage it in a way that supports the birds. But purchasing land in the Central Valley is expensive, so they were looking for alternative solutions. Then they caught wind of a data set at Cornell's Ornithology Lab. For the past several years, this lab has been collecting geotagged photos of birds.
5: It's provided by amateur birders who normally would have just written down on a piece of paper and kept these detailed logs of which birds they saw. So they go visit a particular spot in the Central Valley and they might say, I saw two Dunlin today and one yellow-legged tern, and then they go back the next week and they kind of keep that diary. And the data set takes all of those amateur birders, of which frankly there are lots and many of them are fanatic, and gets them to take these journals and actually put them online into a shareable database. And so Cornell's lab of ornithology really led the work taking these these this data from the amateur birders, getting them to put it into this application called eBird, which was a mobile application so people could collect that data just right when they were in the field. With their smartphones. With their smartphones. And then the Nature Conservancy came along and said, wow, you've got this amazing data set of information from these amateur birders, how can we turn that into a conservation application?
4: With the Cornell lab data, TNC was able to create a computational model and accurately predict exactly when the birds were on the move and where they would be
5: in any given season. So a very dynamic assessment of where these birds are going to be. And then we can create a pop-up wetland for, say, two weeks of the year when they may be most need it before continuing on the, on the migratory pathway.
4: They created these pop-up wetlands by sourcing short-term property from rice farmers. Basically, in exchange for some amount of money, the farmers would either add water to their fields a little bit before they normally would in the winter, or leave the water on their fields a little bit longer.
5: And then the wetland goes away and the farmer goes right back to farming the way that he or she would have been.
4: From the Nature Conservancy's perspective, this is a win-win. The birds get a place to rest and fatten up during their migration. And the farmers earn some money for creating these pop-up wetlands.
1: And another benefit of the strategy? It's actually improved the relationship between conservationists and farmers, a relationship that in the past was pretty contentious. And the whole project is possible because of a big citizen science database amassed by amateur birders and organized by Cornell.
5: I mean, it's sort of a mind-blowingly efficient way to think about conservation in a world where most of our conservation models are these static models, where we spend lots of time thinking about exactly which piece of property to buy because we'll hold it into perpetuity. In this case, what we're actually doing is renting a piece of habitat for just a little bit of the year, and that changes the whole calculus on conservation into one about efficiency and flexibility and a dynamic approach.
1: TNC first piloted this program a year and a half ago, and since then have continued to do it during the migration period.
5: The ingredients to success were this massive citizen science data set, really complex computational power, detailed precision conservation about exactly when and where these birds were landing, and a market-based mechanism.
4: Stories like these in the world of conservation are exciting, because the narrative around environmental issues is often doom and gloom.
1: And that's especially true for the most pressing environmental issue we've ever faced, climate change. So what might big data tell us about Earth's climate system?
4: When it comes to climate change, the interesting question is not, are humans affecting global climate? Scientists answered that question long ago. However, there are still uncertainties about the impacts of climate change at the regional level and the timescales over which global warming will unfold.
1: In the era of big data and unprecedented computational power, the much more interesting question to ask here is, what can't we know? How much of the remaining uncertainties in climate science are a big data problem? After all, millions of data points are involved in making climate forecasts.
4: To get a handle on this, we decided to reach out to Daniel Swain. He's a Ph.D. student at Stanford studying how climate change may affect weather patterns. And he also writes the popular California weather blog. We asked Daniel a question that a lot of people ask climate scientists. If we have such a hard time forecasting weather more than a few days in advance, how can we be confident in our climate
7: forecasts? When we talk about the climate system, when we make outlooks for decades in the future, for example, we're essentially making probabilistic statements which is to say we're not making a specific weather forecast for january 20th you know 2020 what we're saying is that at a particular point in time that the likelihood of seeing certain kinds of conditions is either increased or decreased
4: some scientists like to put it this way climate is what you expect weather is what you get
1: we all know what weather is because we see it outside our windows every day But climate is defined by averaging weather over longer timescales. So we don't really see and experience climate the way we experience weather.
4: On shorter timescales, weather is complicated. There's inherent chaos in the atmosphere, and the system is in a constant state of flux.
7: You can never rule out a tiny event having a, an outsized impact at some time in the future. That's why it's impossible to make a weather forecast more than 10 or 20 days in advance, because there's, there's an infinite number of these little events going on all over the Earth that after you know, a certain amount of time, they sort of cascade and the forecast becomes very uncertain since we can't possibly capture all of those initial events.
1: One way to understand the kinds of research questions Daniel is interested in is to think about it in terms of time. Weather takes place over hours and days, while climate is measured over decades. Daniel, like a lot of climate scientists, is interested in the in-between timescales of months, seasons, and years, because it's there that we have the highest level of uncertainty in the science.
4: On those timescales, one of the most important phenomenon in the global climate system is El Nino, Every time an El Nino occurs, it has global impacts. And in fact, at the time of this recording, in early 2016, we are in the middle of what is very possibly the largest El Nino ever recorded.
7: El Nino fundamentally is a this periodic warming of the eastern tropical Pacific Ocean. Period. The eastern tropical Pacific Ocean becomes warmer than average, for, for as a result of a variety of physical processes that, be, that occur in the atmosphere and the ocean, and ultimately um, that, that those processes result in uh, pretty major effects around the world in terms of global climate. So it's this oceanic process that's caused potentially by atmospheric processes and has large impacts on the atmosphere pretty much everywhere um, on Earth.
1: Among many other impacts, El Niño typically leads to increased rainfall in California, the collapse of fisheries in South America, and hurricane activity in the eastern Pacific.
4: The relationship between El Niño and climate change is complicated, and it's a major focus for many climate scientists. El Niño conditions develop every few years, and the last major event happened in 1997 and 98.
1: But its occurrence and severity are sporadic and irregular. Climate scientists believe that if we can improve our understanding of El Nino, this will translate to better forecasts on year-to-year timescales.
7: What's interesting is that the uh, the current El Nino was actually really well predicted in advance, almost remarkably so, considering that um, certain parts of the ocean basin have demonstrated temperature anomalies that we haven't previously observed. And some of these models, these predictive models that we use to forecast the development uh, of El Nino, suggested that that was exactly what was going to happen uh, quite a few months in advance. Uh, a lot of them were saying, well, the temperatures in the equatorial Pacific Ocean may in fact become warmer than we have previously observed. And a lot of people were kind of skeptical of that, saying, well, these, these might be a little bit of an overreaction, this seems a little implausible since we've never observed it before. Well, it turns out that in many cases these models correctly predicted an unprecedented event, um, which is pretty impressive.
1: So the improved forecast of El Nino this year suggests that our climate predictions may be getting better. But there were also many models that predicted a likely El Nino last year. For a full-blown El Nino to occur, though, you need a set of weather conditions at the right time of year. And in 2015, those conditions never materialized.
4: There is still some amount of uncertainty that may be irreducible, no matter how much computational power we have. Climate is an extremely complex system. But for climate scientists like Daniel, the frustrating truth is that it's difficult to talk about these uncertainties because climate change is so politically fraught, especially
7: in the United States. I think the, the 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 fact that that climate scientists even now are still unfortunately burdened with trying to convince certain people that that climate change exists and that humans are largely responsible is a, sort of a frustrating distraction because there's just no compelling evidence to the contrary whereas for a lot of other aspects of, of climate science when you when you get down to the nitty-gritty details on the regional level and on the on the more specific level with more sophisticated questions other than is the planet warming and are we responsible there is a lot of uncertainty at this at these finer scales spatially and temporally and Unfortunately, those are the things that we actually need to know a lot about if we're going to adequately adapt to the climate change that we know is occurring. The details in that case matter.
4: The biggest message from the scientific community these days is not only is climate change real, but it's already with us. And the long-term impacts are numerous. Sea level rise, risks to our food and water systems, and impacts on ecosystems and biodiversity around the planet.
1: In fact, more and more we hear ecologists and biologists talking about the sixth mass extinction.
4: That term refers to the fact that there have been five previous mass extinctions in geologic history.
1: So, for a number of reasons, climate change chief among them, there is now growing evidence that we are on the precipice of a mass extinction not seen since the dinosaurs were wiped out 65 million years ago.
4: The genetic landscape of nature as it exists today is the product of three and a half billion years of evolution. So the sobering reality is that in our current big data world, where we are accumulating terabytes of information every day, we are simultaneously seeing the loss of data, the data of biodiversity, screaming in the opposite direction.
1: After all, once an organism dies out, their genetic code is essentially gone forever.
4: So what are we doing about this? What can we do about it?
1: More on that after a
0: break. Worldview Stanford creates interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. And we have an upcoming course called The Science of Decision Making. In this course, you'll come to Stanford for three days where you'll meet and interact with experts in neuroscience, psychology, economics, business, design thinking, and more. Before visiting campus, you'll have a chance to explore multimedia content online, articles, infographics, videos, and podcasts. While on campus, you'll also visit labs, develop skills, and collaborate with other curious, like-minded leaders. You can apply now for the spring session of the Science of Decision Making. Our course opens online in February and the campus visit is in late March. For more information, visit worldview.stanford.edu.
4: Given that biodiversity loss is accelerating, the terrifying prospect that we're facing a sixth mass extinction. How are experts approaching the problem? We decided to talk to conservation scientist Peter Kariva.
3: I'm the director of the Institute of Environment and Sustainability at UCLA, and I'm a longtime conservation scientist and an environmental scientist for over 40 years.
1: Peter recently stepped down from his post as chief scientist at the Nature Conservancy, and he still does a lot of work at TNC. Peter says that while we know a large extinction is underway, surprisingly, there's still a lot we don't know about all the organisms on planet Earth.
3: There's so many levels of data deficiencies about um, biodiversity. One is we we don't even know the species that we have. The second one is given that we have a species, we don't understand what I call its genetic landscape. People have been talking for a long time about discovering species, and that's important It doesn't really, for some reason, doesn't excite me as much as understanding the genetics. Because understanding the genetics is really understanding a species at the level at which it engages with the environment, not at the level at which a museum collects it.
4: So it's sort of its ecological context.
3: Right.
1: The sixth mass extinction is, of course, a scary way to look at the world. What could be more tragic? But as a conservation scientist who, for years, has tried to motivate people to change their behavior... Peter thinks that this way of talking about biodiversity loss sends the wrong message.
3: That's not the way I like to think about it. Because a lot of species will be able to, will be able to hang on. It's kind of framing it the wrong way. Well, but isn't isn't it real? It's real in the sense that it's the six massive reshuffling of our fauna, but we have the technology and a lot of laws that we'll have in some small refuge species. Well we're I think of it as just uh An upheaval of our plants and animals. I like to think of it that way because it focuses more on the change than it focuses on the fact that you lose this one species. The fact that you lose this one species does not matter to some people who don't give species the same rights you give them. The fact that the whole ecosystem, the whole world is different matters to most people. And so there is, a massive threat to biodiversity, but talking about it that way speaks only to people of a very narrow sector of society. So I wish we would change that conversation a little bit.
1: There's a growing and outspoken group of environmental thinkers, including Peter, who've been critical of the apocalyptic narrative surrounding discussions of the environment. For a lot of people, the doom and gloom is just a huge turnoff. And in Peter's experience, it means people are more likely to disengage and just not care about very real environmental problems.
4: Another example that shows how Peter is frustrated by some of the environmental messaging is the way we talk about invasive species, organisms that are introduced to ecosystems by
3: humans. If you're a botanist and you care about plant diversity, what do you think has happened to plant diversity in California?
4: I have absolutely no idea.
3: <laughs> it's increased by 25% in the last 100 years. Go to Los Angeles. You care about birds. All of a sudden, there's all these amazing parrots in Los Angeles. I happen to think parrots are cool. Now, they're non-native, and they're way too noisy. But the fact that I could see a flock of parrots moving through L.A., I like that. To a lot of people, those parrots are a horrible thing because they're non-native. But parrots are spectacular animals. They have interesting social structures. They they make a lot of noise. They're beautiful. They're just raucous. And um, they're everything that you say that you like when you go out in a wilderness experience. So can we learn from that, uh, you know, different ways of thinking about nature in our experience? At the end of the day, Peter Kareva considers himself
4: a pragmatic conservationist. To his mind, we shouldn't say that an ecosystem is ruined just because there are non-native species living there.
1: He would argue that even though human impact is global and that there is no such thing as pristine, untouched wilderness, that there are still ways to experience and interact with nature that we should be celebrating. Some people in the environmental community take deep issue with this point of view. But ultimately, Peter wants to invite more people into developing a relationship with nature.
4: And he sees big data as being a part of that.
3: The real key is changing behavior to me, that's the question. And, and it's at two levels. How do you change corporate behavior and how do you change individual behavior? And so data and information can change behavior. The other thing that could change behavior is narratives, stories. So that's what I'm fascinated with is both this analytical scientific collection of how information is delivered and to what extent it changes behavior. And from the other point of view, from the humanities point of view, What's the story you want to tell to change behavior?
1: In a way, big data may be changing the messages that we receive about the state of the environment. It may be changing the story.
4: Ursula Heise is a literary critic who studies environmental narratives. She's a professor of English, and she's also in the Institute of Environmental Sustainability at UCLA. She's currently finishing a book called Imagining Extinction, The Cultural Meanings of Endangered Species.
0: I was interested in exploring what exactly the stories and images about endangered species are and what they mean. It turns out that our catalog of endangered
4: organisms tends to be biased towards large, charismatic animals, like snow leopards, black rhinos, and blue whales. This happens not just in pop culture, but also in science. And according to Ursula, this is no accident. The endangered animals that we use to represent biodiversity loss reflect our cultural values. They tell a story, not just about nature, but about human societies.
0: So if you think of the Bengal tiger or the panda bear, for example, I mean, those are national symbols in India and China. Um, When you think of, um, you know, Nixon's speech to Congress in 1973, the one that introduced the ESA, I mean, he mentioned that at that point, the bald eagle was endangered. Um, Yeah, the the United States national bird. So so they're often often animals that have a symbolic function or have religious significance or are beloved by the culture and so forth. Um, The polar bear is to some extent an interesting exception to that because the polar bear is not tied in the same way to the story of a particular community. The polar bear stands in for climate change. It's the white bear on the white landscape. It's sort of the last image of a pristine landscape that's now disappearing, right? It's a symbol for the fate of the world as a whole, not for the fate of a particular community. Ursula
1: says that we tell these elegiac or tragic stories in part because we're lamenting or mourning a landscape or a place that no longer exists. This is the doom-and-gloom framing that surrounds environmentalism and leaves a lot of people with a bleak view of humanity.
4: But as Ursula explores in her book, there are other narratives we could use, narrative viewpoints that don't just focus on destruction. She says a good example is a biodiversity database.
1: These are huge databases that list species, where they're found, how endangered they are, and so on. One of the biggest is the IUCN Red List. Ursula says these databases tell a story about who we are and where we're going.
0: In some sense, they're not elegiac and tragic in the way that I described before, but they resemble more a different literary genre, um, which is epic. So epic is a pre-modern kind of narrative that um, you think here, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and so forth. So different cultures around the world have All have epic narratives that are narratives of where a particular community came from cosmologically um, and what its calling is in the world. And there's an attempt to really understand the world and the cosmos in its entirety. That ambitious attempt to give a full account of oneself and everything else in the world, um, in the world around us. That was something I was really interested in, and sort of the global story that these databases tell. A
1: biodiversity database is a fitting environmental narrative for the era of big data. Documenting the ecological and genetic information of all species on Earth is an epic endeavor, one that's ongoing and realistically will never end.
4: Even as humankind's dominion over nature has grown, there's still so much we don't know about our planet. As a species, we are hardwired with curiosity and hunger for information. Many of our most ambitious ideas are inspired by the natural world, and our capacity for discovery is limitless.
0: There's one of the paradoxes in thinking about species extinction is that even as we know that we're losing species on a fairly regular basis, we also um, find new species all the time. So, and in fact, the number of new species that we discover and name um, sometimes outpaces the number of species that we find to be extinct.
4: Right now, the apocalyptic narrative is deeply entrenched in our discussions of biodiversity and the environment. How often do you hear messages like, we have to take action before it's too late and the whole system falls apart?
1: And for some people, this is the most appropriate story. It isn't wrong. But it doesn't have to be the only story we tell, and maybe the big data of nature can help change the narrative.
4: What makes humans such a unique species is that we can transmit unbelievable amounts of information down through generations. Every organism passes their genes to their descendants, but we can also pass on an incredible depth of accumulated knowledge.
0: We hand down data and stories. Part of my Project in the book and in thinking about things like biodiversity databases was to see if there were other stories than elegy and tragedy. Are there other more future oriented and more optimistic, more constructive and creative stories that we can tell about the way that we live with other species? Most people. Um, are just very used to stories about the apocalypse coming. You know, and every other science fiction novel and film has a post-apocalyptic wasteland and people who eat each other like we eat burgers, you know. Now, to encourage people, it's also useful to have um, more upbeat and more interesting kinds of stories. And that, the, that project of wanting to collect information about all of life on Earth and to have an entry for every species... I think is actually sort of a creative and constructive one.
4: Scholars like Ursula believe that the stories we tell have consequences for our relationship with the environment. The way we talk about nature matters.
1: Big data is creating new knowledge about our environment and our planet and maybe giving us a new way to engage with nature. Some people in Silicon Valley and beyond are trying to leverage these data sets to achieve sustainability. Right now, the worsening problem of climate change is wrapped up in an apocalyptic narrative. But maybe the young successes of projects like Bird Returns and Literati begin to lay a foundation for a different story, one that's data-empowered and participatory.
4: For some environmentalists, the ubiquity of technology is antithetical to nature. Some believe, perhaps with good reason, that our smartphones, laptops, and digital lives separate us from the natural world and ultimately alienate us from the systems that gave rise to and support our species.
1: But there is also a point of view that there are new ways to engage, participate, and enrich our relationship with the natural world. Our growing databases of waste, climate, and biodiversity tell a story.
4: So, what's the story that we are going to tell for this and future generations?
2: If you want to learn more about Jeff Kirshner's startup, Literati, go to literati.org. That's L I T T E R A T I.org. Amateur birders may be interested in eBird, run by Cornell's Ornithology Lab. Find it at eBird.org. And for you weather nerds, we recommend Daniel Swain's California weather blog at weatherwest.com. Thanks to Nancy Murphy, Allison Burke, Steve Griffin, and Cowstub Thermalive for editing help with this episode. And special thanks this week to John Christensen at UCLA's Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. Our show is produced by Leslie Chang, Mike Osborne, and me, Miles Traer. Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Mattson, Dean of Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. We also want to thank Tom Hayden, This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is genanthro.com, and you can find us on Twitter, at GenAnthropocene. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
4: Are we recording? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I don't know if this is going to be helpful. Okay. But pretend you have a spastic dog. A dog is okay. just, like,
6: <laughs>
1: yeah. just, just nuts,
4: nuts. right and, yeah. and you're gonna take the dog on a walk and you got one of those retractable leashes yeah you know the leash can be variable yeah, you length can, like, press right your thumb. and yeah. so you're walking down the street with this spastic dog and he's running to the left and he's running to the right and he's dragging behind and he's running up ahead and he's all over the place right yeah but you're still heading down the street in a certain direction all right in this scenario the
1: Climate is me. Cl-
4: climate is you. Uh, climate changes the trajectory you're on. And weather is the dog. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but actually, and this is the important part, yeah. the leash is is the most important thing. The leash is like the whole envelope of where the dog can go. It may go all over the place in a totally wow. unpredictable way, but it can only go so far of, outside, yeah. you know, away from you. Got and it. So actually, you're not really, you, you are a climate, but you're really the average of weather in this. You're in the right. middle position the whole time.
1: Right. Is I like help? it. Is I that like helpful? It. Yeah, that's really good.
4: I thought that might be helpful. Okay, so if you want to, you can splice that in. Okay. Um, okay.
1: I think we're done.